Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Luke Diebel. Hello, everybody. And special guest today is Titus DeCali. Welcome, Titus. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing to be on a podcast where the likes of Michael Thiessen and Justin Schroeder have graced. I mean, these are guys I look up to, so it's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Saw your article. So, spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about an article that Titus wrote. And it's really good. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with you about internationalization and getting a good workflow for that, because that's something that's really difficult in uh, modern applications, I think. Right. At least, it, at least it can be. Hopefully your methodology will improve on it, right? Definitely. <laughs> Great. So Titus, would you mind introducing yourself and kind of how you got into programming? What brought you here? I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more, than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, sure. So I'm an American ex expat and lived here in Seoul, South Korea for the past 12 years. It's crazy that 12 years have gone by. I don't know where the time went. But I first came here like many foreigners do, just teaching English. I studied Korean for about eight months at a language school. And then I got into an IT company here doing translation and marketing and you know all the English stuff that they couldn't really handle. And I was a designer during that time for about 10 years. So I did some of that on the side. But about six years ago, I got really kind of fed up with the fact that I couldn't build real things. You know, I could, I could plan these amazing apps I wanted to build. I could, I could do the whole marketing cycle and all that stuff. Uh, and I could create prototypes, but that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted things that people could use and, and touch and feel, you know. And so I started just doing HTML and CSS with like Eric Hanschett's videos on YouTube and dev tips and those things. But JavaScript was scary. Like <laughs> I was, I was really afraid of it for years. I mean, I gave up on programming probably ten times over the past fifteen years, thinking I didn't have the right brain or wasn't smart enough or whatever. But I mean, if I can do it, I, I believe anybody can do it. It just takes time and and uh, focus. But yeah, so I, I started that, and then after I did some HTML CSS, I started with a, a dev based in London, and we started on a project together. But he was mostly a backend dev. And he could do the front end, but we were looking for somebody to convert my designs into, into some, some real nice components. And I thought I didn't know how to do that with just HTML and CSS. And so we went looking, had trouble, couldn't find anybody that we really wanted to work with at the time. And he said, oh, well, if you know HTML and CSS, I'll just show you the basics of React. So that was my first foray into kind of a pair programming type thing where he would send me videos of, okay, here's how you do components and here's how you do props and here's how you route between pages with the React router. And that was really my first start and gave me a little bit of confidence there. But then about a year later, I met another dev for another project and he got me into Vue, was talking about how incredible it was and easy to learn. And I really think that's the, the benefit of it is, is the, the V directives, right? Because you don't really need to know how the underlying JavaScripts work to get a lot of power 
out of view. I mean, you can do VFs and V4s, which are very similar to JavaScript, but it's just out of the box. You get all that right in line in your templates. So for somebody that only knew HTML and CSS at the time, that was easy to transition into. So yeah, I started with that. And then over time, it got me into more complex methods and functions and how do I do this and that and managing. And and yeah, that was really the start of it. Now I'm doing full-time programming for the front end for all kinds of clients here in the in uh, Korea and also overseas. So it's been, uh, and I will say it's the most rewarding career out of everything I've done in my life. I'm 35 now, but out of anything I've done in my life, programming is by far the most rewarding job I've ever had and fulfilling. That's awesome. And thank you so much for sharing that that journey, especially the just talking about how you were looking for somebody and you're, you're solving the problem that you had, which I, I would imagine helps with the learning process, right? Right. I think the, the whole process of learning, for me, it, it was very important to not only do it myself and have the power to not rely on other people, but also in every step that I learned, I tried to keep track in a notebook of that. So I, I keep all my stuff in Notion currently, but in the past, it's been notes and here and there and everywhere. But uh, yeah, I just keep everything in Notion, all my learning. And then I try to transfer that to Medium to teach others. Because my dad used to always say, uh, you, you, can, you don't really know something unless you can teach it to somebody else. So I, I feel like that's my get away from my uh, imposter syndrome and know that I'm really knowing my stuff by transferring that knowledge to others. So yeah. One question I would have about your, your onboarding experience into programming, as it were, is you started in design. What was it like going from like design tools to having to write things in just HTML and CSS? What, what was that experience like? Right. It's funny because when you're a designer and you don't know anything about, about front-end development and you're you're looking at your design tools, like I use Sketch, but I've used Figma as well. And so in Sketch, they they generate the, C, generate the CSS for you, right? So I thought, oh, it's all the codes here. You just copy and paste it. Well, actually the usable code in there is like two out of 10 lines, if that. And typically you're going to redo that anyways. And so it was... I would say the designer made me a better programmer and being a programmer made me a much better designer as well. But that transition was, I mean, visually, I understood the basics of how to do it, but it was just understanding the, the the quirks of CSS and then getting into things like CSS Grid, which is amazing. Learning things like that really took my, my skills to the next level. But yeah, I think it's just a process. I would say if you're a designer right now and you're not programming, definitely like just start with HTML and CSS. You can do it in a month. You can learn it and be fairly proficient in it. So there's no reason to, to not do that. It will make you a better designer. And I guess a follow-up question would be, being a designer who is now a developer, what has your experience been working with developers who don't have that design background or that design instinct? I, I've listened to like Adam Wathen talking about how he's not a designer right. and he's, he tries to do it very developery and until they develop some patterns with him and, and Steve, which is part of how they got Tailwind and responsive design right. and all, all of their stuff that's coming out of Tailwind at this point. What's your experience been on that side? I kind of take over the front end is what I do. So when I'm working on uh, I, the projects that I really enjoy building are, are greenfield projects. You know, they're starting from scratch, whether there's an existing designer there or not. I'll take either their design or mine, and I will just build it from scratch. I will do all custom CSS. I will have CSS variables. I will have a theme sheet, include dark mode in that and everything. And I like to control that whole flow because, as you asked, there was one project where we had a publishing team. Now, I'm curious in the West, if because I've been here so long, I'm losing my Westernization. But in the West, do you have anything called publishing? And do you, do you use this still when it comes... So basically, publishing in Korea... 
what that means is someone that just does templating. They do HTML and CSS and that's all they do. And maybe a tiny bit of jQuery, but they're like one step in the development flow. So you have a designer, you have a publisher, and then you have someone that actually programs those, those published templates. So is there anything like that right now? Does anybody use this word? Not in my experience. Although I've, I've tended to, unfortunately, I've also tended to work on teams without designers. So it's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been the front end developers doing the whole thing from wow. start to finish. We're kind of full spectrum where it's design, coding the front end, coding the back end. So the designs are not that great, but yeah. So I, I don't know anything about this, this publisher sort of thing. Yeah, well, I don't recommend it. Let me tell you that because the, the, <laughs> I worked on two projects that that in in, a, in one company where they had a publishing team of five or six people working on stuff. But these publishers are typically very experienced with creating little simple templates to be used in little web apps for educational things. You know, they're not to be wrapped with a front end framework or or like Vue or React like I do. So. They're, they're just not a good fit. So they're see it like when you take a template that's a full page and then you chop up, okay, here's the header, here's the this and that. It doesn't all, the CSS doesn't play nicely together all the time because you've taken something that was all connected and you've separated it out. And some of their selectors are not pointing in the right place and there's all that. So I that's been my my worst experience is having to decode all their their complex CSS styles and like re reform them to something that worked for building components in view and making it smart. But yeah, these days I'm I'm looking, well, I'm I'm very busy on client projects these days with with plenty to do. But when I do look for new projects, it's always, okay, you have an idea or you have a design. Okay, let me go build it from scratch because I'll do it right the first time. And I'm gonna uh, that whole structure is going to be very easy for other people to then pick up and use. Whereas you have this person doing this and that person doing that, try to combine them. It's just, yeah, it ends up not going too well in the end. <laughs> Yeah. So what are the what are some of the things you do to make sure that you get it right the first time as someone who's done this process several times? So I created my own CSS framework which is very simple called uh, BlueFrame and it, it's I mean you can go use it if you like but there's many other things similar out there like uh, Skeleton or or even Bootstrap. It's based off the kind of utility class concepts of Bootstrap. So I basically have I use SCSS and I use partials to have, you know, like my button components and and everything separated out. And then I also have my theme in there as well. So my theme has all my variables for all my colors and all my, maybe I have box shadows and border radiuses and things. And if you add dark mode to that there, you can also do root CSS and then have your default styles, your dark mode styles or different theme styles. So I have that all in one file that makes it very easy to, to use across my app. I think that's really... The key is getting a very strong foundation when it comes to styling your app. And then when I'm doing custom CSS for a specific component, I use the scope style and view like we do and just use my variables directly. I've also used SCSS variables, but in view, you actually have to import the, like if you have a vars variables file, you have to import it into every single component. Such a pain. Uh, it is a pain. I wish, and, and CSS variables and SCSS variables don't, play well together because SCSS is compiled and then used, whereas CSS, it just it's always the same for the variables. So I've actually, in this last project, I just did a blockchain project uh, we're launching today, actually, that I used uh, dark mode for the first time, and I use CSS variables for that. And now I've switched my entire 
all those variables over to CSS just to maintain that, that ability. And now I don't have to import anything into my templates or uh, components. I just write straight, you know, var color primary, or for example, in my, in my scope styles and it works, no imports. So yeah, I think that's kind of the direction things are going. Uh, when it comes to to styling. But yeah, it's all about that foundation. If you have that strong foundation, which takes time to build, but if you spend the time to do it, then everything else just gets streamlined. I feel like this yeah. could be another podcast. It I, could, I, think, I think it should be. I was about <laughs> to say, to not to derail from, from our main topic, but this is really cool. Yeah, I completely agree on that with the with the styling. I When I use Tailwind, for example, I, I'm looking at that Tailwind config as my strong foundation. Like I'm setting my colors, I'm setting my parameters. And even though I'm just using the utility classes that Tailwind provides, I'm treating it as a design system so that as I'm going through, I'm not just spewing classes all over the place like people are concerned about with Tailwind. Right. That's kind of how they set it up, right? In the most recent release, I noticed they've kind of gone to that theming direction a bit more. And I used Tailwind before the last re release. And it's great for just getting up and running very quickly. I did a couple client projects with that and like just... No brainer. I mean, if you just got to do something quick and dirty, you don't need custom styling or you're not running off a design, a designer style guide, then Tailwind's the way to go by far. It's just awesome. Well, cool. We will definitely talk about coming back on and talking more about CSS. But awesome. let's dive into yeah, the, yeah. the main topic at this point. <laughs> so many fun topics to talk about. Yeah. Uh, endless, my so, friend. Endless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the best part about programming. It just keeps going. Yeah. You never run out of things to learn. It's <laughs> true. So today we're going to learn more about internationalization. And Titus, you wrote a blog post about this that is very thorough, explaining your process that you've developed to implement internationalization in a view application. I'd really just like to, to hear, first off, let's talk a bit about what that process is, how you came to it, and also just, first off, let's talk about why it's important to focus on internationalization at all. I mean, we hear about that all the time. It's like, we need to we need to be accessible, we need to have our users be able to use the site, be able to read the content. But why is it important to focus on with such such a, a fine focus rather than just, yeah, we'll, we'll just add some text later and English and Spanish, it's all good. Right, there's, there's tons of ways to accomplish it. I mean, there's a lot of tools out there that will sort of do it for you. I've... I used to do, before I was doing actual coding and view, I also did a lot of Squarespace sites and Wix and that kind of stuff for clients. And there are some very cool apps that will add a language switcher and will automatically parse all of your strings and will allow you to edit that text directly on the site. And that's really cool. And you can sometimes do that for, for front-end frameworks as well, but it's it's fairly expensive and time-consuming. And you typically use a tool once and then barely touch it again, and you're paying for months and months of that subscription. But those tools exist. In general, I mean, there's a few things to think about. And that's, I, I don't think you should translate your website into as many languages as possible right from the bat. I think if you're, if you're creating some kind of content or some kind of service, you should have people in place that either speak that language or it's a simple enough tool that they don't need support for that because you don't want to be in a situation where you're launching a market and your translations are very bad and someone uses it and there's no support and all this. So I think it's important to slowly maybe start with one, one secondary language and then build from there as you expand into different territories. And uh, there's so many topics to talk about within this, but yeah, it's, it's important to be inclusive of the people that might use your app but you also need to ensure that they're getting the best experience for that. So I, part of my workflow, because I was also a translator, I worked for agencies and on many translation projects, translated games and things like that here in Korea. And 
it's very important to set up a nice workflow for those translators to do their jobs as well, because the better you set them up, the better job they'll do. But then you also have to consider that just because someone says they're a translator doesn't mean that they're going to do a good job with your app. So it's very crucial to find someone that understands your industry, understands what your app does, how it works. If it's a web app, then someone who understands basic like UI naming for buttons and different actions so that they can put those in. So there's a lot of detail there. But in general, yeah, if you have all that stuff set up, in the right way, and you have the right translators and the right staff to support those languages, then yeah, it's it's even more so than the users for a business. It's just great because you've just opened up a huge amount of new cust- potential customers. And now you can go out there and market to them. Now you can bring them in and give them a great experience. I'm also curious to know how much do people from other parts of the world who might speak English as a second language, and I don't know if this is an answerable question, but how much do they care that it, that it's in another language? Because I can, just trying to put myself in their shoes, if I speak Spanish, for example, as my first language, and then I see an application that's like a to-do app that does Spanish really, really well, and it's proper, you know, it's translated properly, and it just feels like that's first class, I feel like I would buy that app over any other to-do app. So I'm curious to know, like, how, how important is that to people that the translation is done well in their primary language? I would say that depending on the region, it's either crucial or still appreciated. It's one of those two. In Asia, there's not a lot of, like, the general level of English speakers. I'm just starting from an English base, for example. The level of English speakers is very low in these countries, even though Korea has the highest number of edu- or rate of education for, for English. On average, people don't speak English. Like you, you can't really survive here unless you speak Korean. It's just a fact. And that's because there's such a disparity between how the language of, of Korean or even Japanese works when compared to English. So if you are a Korean person that doesn't speak English and you go to a first of all, you're not they're not gonna know what your app does because your explanation of page or the landing page or whatever you have, unless it's extremely obvious with a video or something, is not gonna be conveyed. They're also probably not gonna search with Google. They're gonna search with Naver or you know, whatever their country's main search engine is, if it's not Google. And they're if you don't have well, this we're getting into SEO issues here now, but yeah, in general. If they don't see that their language is supported, they might either never find your app or they're going to just leave the page right as soon as they hit it. So in Europe, where you have like in Amsterdam, right? I lived there uh, for a year uh, doing design stuff for a while and everybody speaks English better than Americans. So, (laughs) I mean, they say they don't, but they do. So in that case, do they care? Probably not. I think it really depends on which market you're targeting and you have to have a little bit of understanding or, you know, connect with somebody there and figure out what the the actual setup is for that location. How to, you know, what's the average level of speaking, et cetera. But I mean, like I said, if you're going to launch in a, in a market, you'll probably have somebody that speaks that language and is there to support those users. And they can probably hold your hand through that process to, to figure out what the best way is to localize that. But yeah, I would say in general, it's it's if you're opening in a market, you better target that language as a general rule of thumb. So what are some of the, the key difficulties that we're trying to address with internationalization? I think the first obvious one is making sure your login button, for example, says login in the correct language. It's not We're not defaulting to English. 
What are some of the, the main challenges and difficulties that we run into as we start to internationalize a website or a web application? Right. So I18N, the package is awesome. I mean, it does so much stuff out of the box that I, I really love it. But when you're actually having to apply to an app, you soon realize the difficulties of setting everything up. So uh, even installing I18N for Vue, that's a whole process. You know, you've got to go to the docs, figure all that stuff out. Then you've got to figure out, okay, do I want my strings like in each component or do I want to manage them outside in a JSON file, which is the way I would suggest in a locales folder. And you have to have logic to switch those languages. You have to have logic to, on my projects, I detect what the browser's default language is and I set that as the default. Uh, so you have to have that logic in. You're going to have to create a little component that allows you to click those languages and you'll have the relative flags and all that. And it's got to be responsive and work on mobile too. You've got, I mean, that's just the installation part, right? Just that alone is hard. But then when you actually get into using it, that's where the real difficulty comes in. So once you've set everything up and you can switch languages, you've got your locales folder. Now you've got to convert all of your strings of text and every single component and every page of your app to a key, which IT9N can understand, and then map it to a, the JSON file. And okay, you can manually do that. That's how I did it at first. I, I went through, I had a project, side project called Spring that was the first thing I did IT9N on. And I went through and I manually went to every single piece of text and wrote the keys myself. And it took weeks. And no matter how many times I did it, there was one or two I missed in some little edge UI, you know, modal component or something, you know, and I had to go back and do it and go back and do it. And that's where I realized there's got to be a better way to, to handle this, this type of thing. So the client after that, about three months later said, hey, we'd like to localize this bookstore we've just launched. And we, you know, is this something you can do? And I said, well, let me, yeah, it'll take a few weeks, but we can do it. So I went looking for alternative solutions to that. And that's when I found View Translation Manager, an amazing package, and I18N Ally. And I found this app called Babel Edit. And it's the combination of all these things that really gives you an incredible power. So starting with View Translation Manager, you fire this up, you just install it. Uh, there's a little bit of setup you have to do. I've outlined all this in my Medium article very clearly. So there's no, uh, shouldn't be any hiccups there. And once that is set up, it's, it's essentially a, a command line interface. It's a CLI that you just go to the repo and say, view translation manager, and then translate. And it will scan every single component you've got in your app. It will, including the data and other things too, it will find all the strings and it will automatically convert those to keys and, and interpolate that into your templates directly. And what it does is it uses the file structure and the naming that you've set up to name these keys. So first of all, I, I only do the IT&N section once I know the app is pretty pretty set in stone. Like I, the app's almost ready to launch. This is kind of the last stage of development that you would do this. I wouldn't worry about it ahead of that because you end up having to do the same tasks over and over again and naming gets messed up if you move things, et cetera. So what it does is, let's say you've got a, a views folder for your, your pages and then you've got a home page. What it will do is say T for translation string and it'll say views home and then dot whatever the first few words are of that of that item and it'll grab that and it will interpolate that into your your text and this happens instantly i mean it's it's amazing how much time this saves literally weeks of work there are some caveats that uh, we should be aware of though so when we run this what it's going to do is scan your 
locales folder. It's going to see all of your languages and it's going to try to help you translate those right in the command line interface. So it's going to say, okay, for the homepage, here's the title for hero. And it's going to say, okay, what's the English text? And you know, it'll default to the one that you've set previously. You hit enter. Okay, that's English. And if you have a bunch of other locales files like uh, Spanish or Japanese, for example, is going to say, okay, what's this translation in Spanish? Okay, what's this translation in Japanese? You could sit there for and, months doing that. <laughs> right. And so you can translate your entire app there in the command line interface, but I don't recommend it. I have a different workflow. So I would say when you start out, uh, just have one locale in your, your locales folder. And that should be, if, if you're starting in English, en.json. And what that's going to do then is only ask you once. It's going to only set your English strings. And basically what I do, and I've mentioned this in a, in a GitHub issue on their package, but I put a coffee cup on my keyboard because there's no way to automatically do them all. And so I, I put it on the enter key. I walk away and have a meal or something. And when I come back, all my strings are translated because it has to, it asks you every single one. And if you've so got a thousand I, I gotta strings. Ask. I got to ask, do you literally put a coffee cup? I literally put a coffee cup on my <laughs> You can read the GitHub issue where I've marked this out and said, like, we need a way to just automatically translate everything. But uh, I, I hope yeah. it's called coffee cup mode when they when they implement yes. it. That'd yeah, be perfect. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> auto, auto coffee cup. Yeah. So it's the best way to do it right now. You just find something to stick on your keyboard and hold it down. It goes through every single template and, and solves all that for you. And now there might be a few... So after you've done that, there's a, th a few things to check. One is it might have mangled some of your complex logic inline of your template. Like sometimes you'll have a string that you're using for logic, but actually it'll try to translate it. So you just have to be aware of when that happens and go back and reset some of those. But there's usually only two or three of those cases, even in a large scale app that, I've, that I usually find. There's like a few mangled things that you fix. Uh, also, if you're using ESLint or prettier it's because it's added new text in there you have to go back and save all of your new your components again to reset the prettier settings or to make it happy i should say but once that's all done you've got everything set up and then you just add like if you want to throw in my computers or my computer my component is open source for flipping uh languages my language switcher so you can just drop that in and then connect it up and and you've got you've got it ready right it's working in english so the next step is, okay, I want to add more languages. You can do that within the language switcher component to display and allow those languages to be clickable and tell i18n which language symbol you're, you're trying to switch to, and it will do the, the heavy lifting. But when we actually want to now go and add more languages, this is another step that I sort of figured out, which is you use the app called Babel Edit. This is by Code and Web, amazing programmer, great guy that's that's supported me uh, in many little uh, changes I asked him to make. He made them in like two days. I mean, he's a great guy, great developer. And what this does is it's it's essentially a translation management tool. It works on Mac, Windows, Linux, everything. And it has a free trial, so you can just download and set it up. It's well worth the price. I think it's $50 right now. It like just, if you have to do translation, just buy this thing because you get not only use of the app for an unlimited period of time, but he also gives you a bunch of translation, uh, what should I call it, points, you know, so that you can use with Google Translate or something. He's essentially allowing you to directly get translations from these other uh, services. So uh, deep Sorry, I can't remember the name. It's deep. There's a new one he added that's actually slightly better than Google Translate. It's like it's called DeepL. DeepL, yeah, 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 correct. So he's just added that, I think, a, a month or so ago. And I haven't had much time to play with that. But he says it's better for certain languages. 
so yeah, so essentially the first thing you do, you open this up, you just load your locales folder of the project and it's gonna pop up all your strings for English. And now you simply go to add a language, select what that language is, and it's gonna generate your new locales file for that. Your, so it's ian.json or, or whatever. And you can add whatever languages you want there. And then you can say, I think it's called pre-translate, select the type of translation, DeepL or uh, Google Translate, whatever you prefer. And it will go through every single string and give you the translated version and, and copy that over to your new uh, locale file. So like that's all now automated. Like it's super, super easy to do that. There are some, some things that you can do to get better translations. You have to understand the languages a bit uh, to do that. Like for example, English to Japanese or English to Korean is not super great. If you have someone who's already translated in, into one of those languages, going between those is better. So a Japanese to Korean translation by Google Translate will be more accurate than an English to Japanese or an English to Korean version of that, just because of the nature of the, the grammar. I was going to um, say that that makes a lot of sense since the languages are closer together. Right. You just want to kind of pair those. So if you're going to German, you probably don't want to go Korean to German. You want to go English to German or German to English. You don't want to. Yeah. So I tend to what you can do is set your base language in Babel Edit, and that will then be the reference point. So I'll, I'll probably uh, I'll usually and you can select which languages you want to pre-translate. So I'll usually say, OK, my base language is English. Now I'm going to translate Dutch and German and I don't know, Norwegian, for example. And it will go through translate that. I will switch my base language to Korean after I've translated it myself and I know it's it's good. And then I'll translate to Japanese, for example. And that's really the best way to get the best quality of your pre-translations. But in the end, you really want to have someone that, again, knows your app, knows your industry, is a professional translator that can really make it your copywriting pop in their language. So to do that... Right. In the past, we had strings.json that we get as translators and we have to like work around the code and, okay, what's this end slash thing? And what's all this funny stuff? Like it wasn't fun to work in. You don't know what's connected to what, uh, what goes to which page. And what I've found is very useful is, uh, and I use this for the bookstore I mentioned earlier to translate with translators. I use Babel Edit to export a Excel file, which is the Google sheet format. And a CSV, I think it's CSV that it exports in. And then you drop that into Google Sheets and it will give you now all of your translations on Google Sheets. Now a translator can come in and they can just work within Google Sheets. They can, they can edit anything there. You can add, well, you want to add languages actually in Babel Edit. But once you've got that all set up for them, they can see, okay, this is English, this is Japanese, this is Korean. And then maybe there's this Russian and they're a Russian translator. So they can see what other, other translators are actually doing, which uh, how they've worded their stuff and what the original was. And then they can better make their translation. And then you just go, you save or uh, download that from Google Sheets and just re-import it into Babel Edit and hit save. And now everything is mapped correctly. All of that translator's work is now saved into your app directly into those locales file. So there's no more complex editing. There's no, none of that stuff. It's, it's a great, great workflow. Yeah. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. In the past, I worked with a, a translation group that was needing to translate in JSON files. And I think a good chunk of that was just validating that the JSON files were in a valid format that the translators would understand. Right. So being able to convert that into a 
more recognizable file like a CSV, just so much easier. Wish wish we'd had that <laughs> at the time. Right. And then you can do things like white space preline, is it in CSS? If you put that on your on your body or HTML tag in CSS, you can then have them set slash n within those Google Sheets and it will interpolate into uh, the template correctly and you know backslash and I should say and then they can actually set the line spacing for or line breaks for different things so it allows them to have a little bit more control there too so I usually when I have that file I have one column that's just explaining like hey this is how this works this is how you can you can do this and this to accomplish this and the names uh, correspond to these kind of pages and then just go at it uh, and that usually allows them to have a little bit more finite control about how things appear without you having to cover everything later yourself. <laughs> this makes me wonder though, what about what about the translation in context? So do you ever run into problems where somebody will translate something in a Google Sheet, but they don't actually know the context of what it looks like on a web page? Like to me, in an absolute ideal world, you would be able to translate it on your right side of your screen. On the left side of the screen, you can actually see it updating on the website itself. That'd be pretty cool. So if anybody's listening to this and they want to build something like that. <laughs> this is this is already built. It's done. It exists. It's out there. Oh, I haven't I haven't actually used it in within Vue, but like I said, with Squarespace, I've used similar tools. There are these do exist for React and Vue. Actually, no, I did test it and at the time it just wasn't ready for prime time. There was some bugs or some problems that I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna do this the way I know it works. But yeah, this is the next stage. Again, the only issue with this is they're fairly expensive to use these tools. And it's kind of like a you use it once, you pay for it for everything. And you're kind of indebted to them to use their system. And if if you if there's a way to get around that, if somebody creates a tool that doesn't require that, and maybe it exists today, I just don't know about it, but to allow translators to then take those locales files, put them over the the actual UI and allow them to edit directly within the page, this is the ultimate workflow. And I think we're getting there and one day we'll have that. But I again, I don't want to pay for, I don't want to pay 60 bucks a month for an app that I literally used for a month. And then now I'm just paying for nothing, you know? Uh, and paying for things that have already been done. So if somebody builds that, I will buy it today. I will use it today, but I don't want to pay for the life. Or rather, I don't want my clients to have to pay for something like that. Uh, that's really the bigger issue. Would it be a stretch to think that there could just be a browser extension that hooks into the web page? And whenever something's updated, it doesn't have to be super live, but when things are updated, that could maybe automatically refresh the page and kind of swap out that language file with the one you're currently working on. I imagine like this would be a solvable, anyway, that, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, it would I, be, I feel like this would be a really cool solution. It would be awesome. The only problem I see with that is that you have uh, your strings or your your uh, translation keys have already been interpolated or have already been converted to actual strings in the text. Uh, so the browser extension probably wouldn't know that this string is connected to, you know, home.views.title or, or, or views.home.title or whatever that, that specific string is. So I, yeah, I thought, I've been thinking about this myself quite a while. Uh, how do, how can I make dreams. this better? But there, there's ways to do it. There are ways to do it. I think how the other people do it is they have a package for view and that then in your local host, they have some way of connecting those two. I don't know, maybe they're parsing the CSS class or something or the, the elements index on the page or, and then connect, I don't know. It's it's complex, by definitely. Uh, and that's not the only issue. In fact, even today, I was thinking about an edge case where even if we had those type of tools, I don't know how you ha- handle the biggest difficulty with template translating, which is that, let's say I've got three spans, right? And each one of those spans has text in it. The first and last one are just text, but then there's a link in the middle. 
So it could be like, oh, welcome to my site. Also check out this link and have a nice day. Okay, that's three three things. But in Japanese or Korean, those will be flipped. So now how do you do that? Like, And the way I've gotten around this uh, in the past is I will just literally reference my active language in Vuex State or in the, the local storage or wherever I'm, I'm storing that. And then, yeah, it should be Vuex State actually. So I'm grabbing it from Vuex State. And then I'm saying, okay, if... The language is this, use this template. And if it's that, use that template. And it's not a great way to do it. There's gotta be like this is a big issue that if somebody solves, they're gonna, they're gonna have an amazing product. And I don't know, I don't know the answer to it. It's 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 definitely not easy. But being able to actually rearrange those templates live, that's that's crucial. On the second piece, I think some stuff is coming into CSS in the near future that will handle better with right to left, left to right, top to bottom type languages. And rather, and one of the big pieces of it is rather than looking at like the the left and the right margins, it's looking at the start and the finish margins or start and end. I mean, and then depending on your locale, it should just apply and it sh- should just work. That's the goal, I believe. On the on the first piece where we were talking about the Insta preview, if you're building a static site, at least that should be doable. I'm not sure what Gatsby would have in the React world, but if you're wanting to use a third party tool, there's Forestry.io, which does do instant previews. So as you're editing the translated locale files, it should be doing some sort of auto update uh, and you should be able to see the languages come in. But again, that's just for static sites. That doesn't apply to full web applications or server rendered content. Right. I am in the neighborhood for a good CMS right now. And I haven't, maybe you guys have some, uh, some, some suggestions for this, but yeah, finding a CMS that allows you to generate content or translations or something like there's a lot of cool things. Forestry, I'm a big fan of that. I use it for, I build Jekyll sites on the side, my personal site or if some friend's sites. And so I set up my non-programmer friend to have his website and then he can just use Forestry to write new blog posts and then push them. And it works great. I mean, it's an awesome UI they built uh, in Forestry. If you haven't checked that out, definitely. It's a cool tool. Yeah, make sure there's a link for that. I specifically put in a link for the instant previews, but Forestry.io is wonderful. I've used it in the past as well. Uh, Currently, for any small project I'm setting up, I'm using Netlify CMS. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that handles the the instant reload, unless you're in local environment. And I don't think it really helps for internationalization. So for this particular conversation, it's not great. But for the small use cases where you're in a single language, I've been a big fan of Netlify CMS. I will have to check that out. I'm a big fan of uh, Vercel, and I don't think they have a CMS feature right now, but I will uh, I will have to see what Net- Netlify's got going. It's it's pretty easy to install. You install it into your application itself. So like you create an admin folder. Oh. This is a side tangent for everyone listening. If you want to skip ahead, get back <laughs> to the internationalization, go for it. Um, but you, you basically just create like an admin folder and add an HTML file that will then reference the 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 content. And that's just a React application that's spinning up um, in hash mode. So like you can have your, like for my website, I won't use my website as an example. Uh, (laughs) Let's say, let's say Google, just, you want to add an admin page to Google, Google google.com slash admin. And then, and then you're into Netlify CMS. Uh, And you can just start manipulating all of the content and it goes straight back to GitHub because it's all saved in Markdown files. That's awesome. Yeah. I hope, I hope Vercel adds that kind of functionality. I would have used it already. That's, that's really cool. The only downside is it's React. It's not Vue. So you can't render the components. If you're, if, if you're doing React, I think it can actually render like the page that you're editing. Um, 
I haven't explored that because I use Vue and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. To any React devs out there, React is cool. Everything's cool. We're, we're, they're just tools, right? <laughs> awesome. We are getting towards the end. Are there any other issues that people might run into with internationalization? I know we've covered a lot and I think it covers a majority of the cases, at least what we've talked about would have solved a number of issues that I've had working with internationalization. But are there any smaller cases or things that you want to discuss before we get to the end of the show? Right. So there's a few quick things to touch on, I think. If you want to deal with currency, which is pretty essential if you want to have some kind of e-commerce site or, or store of any sort. And there's a good package I use called View INTL, and then number format, all one word, View International Number Format. And that helps to convert your currency. So you pop in a locale and you say which format you want. So format style currency, and then you can bind whatever data you're trying to pass it right into that little component. And then it fires up. But I think it, yeah, it uses a different locale syntax or, or symbol naming than view I18N does. So you have to have a little mapper that flips those to map correctly. But once that's set up, uh, you can do currency pretty well with that. I've, I've done it in the past and it's, it's uh, yeah, it works well. Um, and typically I'll do the, but then on top, that's just for formatting the currency, right? Then you have to actually get the live currency data. Like translation is hard now. <laughs> you have to get the actual currency data and then bind that correctly for whichever one you're using. So in the past, I've had a backend dev that has used like Java uh, packages that helped him to just pull that data in and, and, and then send it down to me. And then I bind that in uh, based on the, the um, active language. So there's, yeah, this stuff, you almost need a little bit of backend assistance. It's, it's kind of hard or heavy to do on the front end, in my opinion, but uh, still possible. One of the thoughts that I always have with, with internationalizing currency is also getting the, the exchange rates, unless you're going to be charging the same number for, for every currency. You need to have some sort of exchange set up so that you can translate between that as well. Exactly. That's what I was. That I meant by what I just said, which is the backend help, like getting that live currency data and then right. doing the, the word was exchange rate. You're right. Those correct exchange rates so that you're showing them an actual meaning. You're not just, it's not going to work if you just flip the symbol. You actually have to change the, the number and the formatting of that to something that people understand. Otherwise, everything's going to be incorrect. So yeah, this is, a, I, this is one of the harder parts, I'd say, is dealing with things like that. But yeah, and then we talked about the the string order, like having a link in the middle, how that messes up things sometimes. Yeah, and we talked about the other services. I think SEO is the the other big thing to consider. We sort of touched on this earlier, but I know Nuxt has an IE18N module that adds some meta uh, metadata based stuff, and you can. I haven't used that personally, but I think it does help with uh, SEO of multilingual sites. The other alternative is you can just make like subdomains for your different languages, and then that will actually be picked up by Google. But just dropping in locales files and having a language switcher, Google doesn't know about that. It's going to read the your index.html lang tag, and it's going to be one. It's going to be English, probably. And then it's going to think the site's in English. So it doesn't matter how many languages you have. It's not even going to know that that's a, a global site. So that's essential to know and understand. But I would say there's a level higher than that that we have to think about as, as business owners and marketers, which is that even if you have SEO, even if you have perfect subdomains and everything's wired up correctly, which you should if you're running a, a larger business that has the time and energy to do that, 
you still need to be aware that probably nobody's going to go to your site, right? You need to have proper marketing. You need to have funnels that lead people there. And that's really the important thing to remember when you're marketing anything, because your competitors are going to purchase the top spot on Google or whatever browser or a search engine they use. And it doesn't matter how good your SEO is, you're not going to be the first result. So you're probably going to have to buy that spot anyways. You might as well just buy it and then not have to worry about the subdomains. And then, you know, have people funneled to your website. And if the, the default uh, browser language pops up first automatically, like I have it set up uh, in my article as well, it shows how to do that. Then, I mean, the, as, as far as the user is concerned, that's a, that's a localized app in their language. It doesn't have to be a subdomain. So we talk about SEO and how important it is on hiring these big SEO teams and all this stuff. But as someone who's done a lot of marketing and, and sales, the crucial thing is getting the people that really want to use your app into your app, not the random person that might discover it on a Google search or some other search engine. So I think the large majority of your paid users will come from these kind of funnels and places. So as long as you have those in place, SEO is a bit less of a sore thumb to think about. <laughs> So we're, we're talking about SEO right now, and we're talking Google specifically, and I'm sure that applies to things like Bing or even DuckDuckGo or something like that. What about, you, you mentioned that there are the, the country-specific search engines. How, how should we optimize our sites to be working for them? Because what process do we need to do so that in South Korea, for example, if I, if I am in the United States, I'm making a website that I want to target South Korea. What what's the process I would need to go through to get my top results on what was it called Naver 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 uh, First of all, good luck because it's hard. It's it's very hard. In fact, their systems are not nearly as well designed as Google. Uh, I have I've talked to expert Koreans who do this stuff, and sometimes their site or their um, like the other day I was talking to somebody that had a, a title on Naver, and then suddenly it got switched to a different. Uh, a different locale, like the, the description got switched to a different language. They had not touched anything. They had not done anything. This is just something that neighbor messed up on and they, I don't know, connected the wrong something. Uh, the metadata editing and, and getting them to set things correct is just a constant like battle. And that's probably even better than what you would find in something like Baidu or, or even other lesser known uh, search engines, you know. Uh, it's hard. You need probably a native speaker to go through. It's not gonna be in English, uh, their UIs. And it's going to be hard to find <laughs> whatever it is. It's just, it's just, it's hard. Yeah. And, but again, if you have a good channel, like if you're targeting people on Instagram or you're targeting people on, I don't know, some other platform and then bringing them into your app, then you bypass all that search engine. You're going to lose the organic traffic there. But as long as when they hit exactly your website's name into the search engine, that it at least pops up on the first page, you're probably all right. Cause they're already looking for what you build. So yeah, again, it's it's more so about having the great these great funnels that lead people, the targeted audience into your your product. But uh, you know more than more than having to deal with all these edge cases, you can do those. But in my opinion, your time is better spent creating funnels than it is trying to get all these impossible settings correct because they're just not it's just not going to happen the way you expect, or it'll take months for them to properly update the the results. So yeah, try to get it good enough, and then focus on your marketing funnels and 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 making your existing customers happy. I'm holding my tongue with excitement here, talking about <laughs> funnels. I feel like we need another podcast as well, just on funnels and how I feel like there's so much, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but there is so much focus on SEO in the coding world. Whereas 
in reality, a lot of the money that you get tends to come from funnels and other ways of bringing customers in. So anyway, sorry, I don't want to send us down that rabbit hole, but yeah, 100%. I was part of a Facebook, a private Facebook group a couple of years ago that was growth hacking. And I learned a ton of really great tricks that then I've turned into different other different workflows. And I'm actually building a new product, which we will probably release in the next three to four months, which is going to help with a lot of this, these marketing difficulties and routing people into your app to use them. So yeah, uh, maybe we could, we could do a combined, another, another episode with, with all these other great questions. That'd be awesome. Well, great. Titus, thank you so much for coming on and talking about all this. Definitely appreciate it. Highly recommend everyone who is listening to check out the blog post. It goes into a lot of detail about all the steps that you need to take that we've been discussing and just explore it, try it, get something internationalized. Yeah, it's translate any view.js app in just one hour. That's the name of the article on me. And it's on better programming. Even better. Uh, couldn't resist. Steve's not here. I had to do it. Great. So at this point, we'll move into picks. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Picks are the part of the show where we share something with the community that we like. It does not have to be programming related. And Titus, you have been talking this whole time, so I'm going to go to Luke first. Uh, so Luke, what is your pick today? Yeah, I just added another one to my list of picks, which is ClickFunnels. So ClickFunnels is what I use to actually market products and build funnels for products. I'm totally uninterested in coding this stuff myself like handling things like a payment, upsells, downsells, all that kind of stuff to be able to code all of that yourself and test it. By the way, I'm not affiliated with ClickFunnels at all, but you know, to have to build all of that stuff and split test it yourself is an absolute nightmare. And it handles things like split tests so beautifully, wonderfully well. And I think the analytical stuff in it as well is like really on point. I love ClickFunnels and whenever I launch a new product, which hasn't been in a while, but it will be soon, it's it's my go-to. It's it's a little bit more in the dearest spot side, but I think if you're serious about selling a product, then it's definitely something worth checking out. And the other one I had was uh, generating specs um, for your API. So I use Laravel Orion to build my APIs with Laravel. And it's Orion 2 has just released a feature for generating a spec file. And I didn't even know about this. I kind of knew about, well, I kind of knew about spec files, but I didn't know that you could generate them and how useful they could be. Because once you've got that spec file, you can then put it into something like, um, like Postman or Insomnia, and it will scaffold out your entire API for you. It is insane. So the cool thing about this is like, I'm doing a getting started series for Quasar at the moment. I can now give people a URL that they can put into Postman because like I got a, I got a fake API that they can use for, for the to-do app we'll be building. 
I can give them a URL that points to this spec file and straight away they'll have all the endpoints set up ready to go so that they can start playing around with the API. So cool. So um, if whatever backend framework you have supports generating spec files, definitely check that out. It is so much fun to be able to generate it and play around with it using something like Postman, Insomnia, or uh, you know, curl if you're that way inclined. <laughs> so yeah, that's my pick. Click funnels and generating specs, specifically with Laravel Orion version two. That is awesome. I'm I'm gonna have to check that out. Uh, the most I've played with generating files is like building out a Swagger doc so that I can provide it to somebody and say, "This is my API. Have fun," but not anything more than that. That sounds really cool. Definitely gonna have to check that out. Yeah, it is. Titus, what are your picks today? Right. So I'm a big fan of sci-fi. And uh, I've actually been writing my own novel for the past five years. One day I hope to finish it uh, called The Frame. But um, I'm in the exact same boat on that one. I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. So amongst the many sci-fi authors I've read, there's one that I think is not well-read enough. He, he also has a publishing company and publishes his own stuff. But his name is Jason Werbeloff, W-E-R-B-E-L-O-F-F. He wrote a series of books called The Bubble Series. It used to be a bunch of disparate, separate stories, but then he combined them all into a very streamlined, uh, I think it's five or six books now, maybe even seven books, uh, shorter books that he has combined. And like everything he's written is amazing. Just his writing style is unique. He really, he will make you feel for characters that you just can't uh, imagine, like just bizarre, bad characters and you just really feel them, you know? He's he's uh, an excellent author. I think everybody should uh, check out that's into sci-fi. Yeah, and help boost his boost his profile on Amazon more for sure. So that's that's the first. The second one is I've been using this new uh, Chromium browser called Sidekick. MeetSidekick.com. And like, this has solved a lot of problems for me. So there have been some other apps out there before which help to aggregate all of your apps into one UI. There's three or four on the market. But what this does is that exact same thing, but in the browser. So you get, it's Chrome, same Chrome that you remember, but on the left, you have a long bar and you have all the icons for the apps that you use most regularly. So I have all my Gmail accounts. I have like chess.com and Notion and Telegram and all my Slack channels and Google and all that stuff in one place. And what it does is you can set it to not suspend those. So rather than having all those tabs at the top of your browser, that's all on the left-hand side and you get rid of all that junk and you just have the things you use most often right there, quick access. It actually went down, their service went down for like a day, two days ago, and I almost died. Like I, I couldn't do anything without this without this sidebar, I had to figure out, okay, I go to Slack for this and Gmail for this. And like, once you start using this thing, it's just an amazing workflow freedom that it gives you. So yeah, that's the the second one, meetsidekick.com. The third one is I'm launching a new article. I just submitted it uh, yesterday to Better Programming. It's called Advanced View Coding Tricks, Curated Tips from Five Years of Building and View. And I've got some really, like a lot of people say they're talking about advanced view tricks and tips and they're, they're never that advanced. I promise you these are, these are advanced. You know, these are things you either will not have seen or are not using now that you should be. And including some really interesting things you can do with the view router to generate side nav bar and top nav bar uh, links automatically and and control a lot of how things are rendered within the router itself. So it's so a lot of power there. You can use server-side routes, for example, and render those out. Uh, some cool stuff. So better programming, advanced view coding tricks. It should be released uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. So by the time this podcast goes live. And that will also be on my uh, medium, Titus to Kelly. 
Excellent. Thank you. I have seen Sidekick before. I'm a I use Brave as my primary browser, so I haven't I haven't dived into it, but it looks really cool. And I've I've had a taste of the the having the things on the side because occasionally I'll use Edge and I set my Edge to use the side tabs just because. Oh. It it doesn't break it out like Sidekick where it's on the side and the top. It's just the side for everything. But I kind of like having the tabs on that side. So I, I could see myself really getting used to Sidekick with that. Yeah, the only bad thing is that it's not available for like Firefox or Brave. I wish it were. And there's some issues with like login. You, Google's blocked some login things. So there's some minor things there, but they're doing an amazing job. I mean, they built a great piece of software. They also have, when you open a new tab, they have a curated stock photos that are, I shouldn't say stock, but like curated photos, which are just awesome to see. So every day there's new photos coming up there. So yeah, big, big, uh, big fan of Sidekick. Excellent. Thank you. So I only have one pick today, and that is StepZen. Don't know if either of you have heard of it before. StepZen builds itself as a GraphQL API for any data source. And what they allow you to do is connect to databases like MySQL or Postgres or REST APIs or a number of uh, pre-built connectors that they have APIs for. And you can just stitch this whole thing together and create a single API for your application to use using serverless technology. I recently did an episode, it's not currently out, of Jamhack, uh, which is a show by This.Labs, or This.Media, sorry, where I was interviewing Brian Rinaldi, who's a dev rel at StepZen. And it was a lot of fun to talk to him and explore this system. So I definitely recommend checking it out. One of the nice features is it lets you stitch the data together. So if you if you need to make one API request, let's say you're 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 reaching out to GitHub, and you want to get data from GitHub. Well, first you need to get certain information before that. So you can make that request, pull that data in, use it as the parameter to make the second request. And this is all just using their APIs. So you, when you're calling it with GraphQL, you're not having to make two requests. You're able to do it with a single request, and you don't have to worry about the backend because it's all serverless. And they're doing that's what their service provides for you. So it's really cool. Definitely recommend checking it out. That is stepsend.com. Make sure that is in the notes as well. Yeah, sounds awesome. So Titus, you mentioned your medium. Where can where can people find you if they want to continue this conversation? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can leave comments on any of my medium articles. I look at them and respond. Or uh, if you want to write me directly, uh, titusdecali.com. That's T-I-T-U-S-D-E-C-A-L-I.com. I have a contact form there. And and yeah, I, I see everything that's it's piped into my Slack channel. So I see everything that comes in live. And yeah, feel free to ask uh, any additional questions. I'm happy to help. Excellent. Thank you. Well, now I have a lot of questions about <laughs> the Slack channel, but we're just going to have to save that for another day. <laughs> I, think, I think we've got at least three more episodes out of this one that we'll need to yeah. break out to. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> awesome. Great. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you'd like to find us, you can get go to viewsonview.com or devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Diebel. Hope you have a great day and see you again next week. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.